0: In October 1731, there was a fire in the Ashburnham House residence of the keeper of the King's Libraries in Westminster, London. The house contained the one and only manuscript of the old English poem, Beowulf. As the fires leapt, the manuscript was rescued by the librarian by leaping out the window, clasping manuscripts. Singed but intact, Beowulf was literally saved from a burning archive. 200 years later, in 1936, an English scholar of Beowulf sought to recover the poem from the dead hand of arid historical scholarship. Look at the imagination of the poet, he said, and so was launched the modern recovery of Beowulf as a masterpiece of the rediscovered culture of the Dark Ages. That scholar was J.R.R. R. Tolkien. One year later, he began to write Lord of the Rings. Would we have had the Lord of the Rings if we did not first save Beowulf from the Burning Archive? That is the question for today's burning archive i am jeff rich i am a writer historian podcaster poet and very 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 minor government official and this is the burning archive podcast which is about all things history and culture where the past is never dead the past is not even past and whereby thinking about the past we try to live better in the present And indeed, the theme of this particular episode is to be grateful for the things of the past that have survived fires and other problems to come down to us and fill us with joy and beauty. So today I am talking about Beowulf. And it is the third of the episodes where I have been responding to questions given to me by Freya Rich in episode 22, A Canon of One's Own, about things that are kind of there, kind of know about, but don't really know about. And it would be good to get a fuller story or a better understanding or even just a greater appreciation of and that is what we're doing today with Beowulf. Beowulf is a poem composed sometime between 600 and 1000 uh, CE. Most likely some people think around about 750 CE or AD in the old language. And it used to be, certainly when I was at university, it was used to be a standard requirement in English literature courses. Uh, when you studied old English, and is generally seen as the greatest literary achievement and the first great poem in English, the greatest literary achievement of the English Dark Ages. So in today's podcast, we've moved from the last two episodes on the history of Rome to what I am just referring to as the Dark Ages, just for a little bit of controversy Well, not controversy, but just to remind us that this used to be how it was perceived. We now really talk about the early medieval period. And Beowulf is one of the big texts, I guess, that helps transform that image of the early medieval period from barbarism to something rather more wonderful. So let's just remind us of Ah, uh, how Freya framed the question about Beowulf to me. Beowulf, ah, which Beowulf. is, I think, to my understanding, a poem. Yes, uh, and this is maybe one of the ones that that I want to know more about because of the impact of you, Dad. But I know this is something that you you i just remember from my childhood you talking about beowulf or you had a pod, you had a audiobook about beowulf yes um, yes but it's some sort of poem and i think it was important yeah. and i want to know does it have i also would like to know if it is at all connected to the concept of werewolves or if that's just a coincidence <laughs> <laughs> so it's basically like a a hero story but quite sort of foundational yeah okay so it would be interesting to know maybe a, a bit about how that all works in the translation and also um, why it was is foundational sort yep. of why why it's important because potentially other other listeners might not might mm. not have heard their dad banging on about Beowulf when they were 10 <laughs> so might not know. <laughs> okay so what is Beowulf why is it significant and does it have any connection with werewolves now Funnily enough, Freya is not so far off the mark with her question about werewolves, although I didn't really realise that at the time of recording that podcast with Freya. Werewolf is like a compound word from Old English uh, of wolf and were, which they think meant man. So man, wolf, which I guess is what a werewolf is and beowulf is similarly a compound word but it's a little bit less clear uh, what it actually is a compound of so some people think it means bee wolf and hence is like a, a a word for bear like you know a bear going in and getting the honey from the bees other people think it means something more like Thor wolf And others also think it means War wolf So there you go Not so far off the money there Freya It is a bit of a uh, It is kind of related to the concept of a werewolf And as we'll get into it We'll see in a way The hero of the story Beowulf Beowulf Or one of the heroes Is uh, a bit of a superhuman character with with special powers of combat although also presented as a a mortal prince king. Beowulf is a heroic elegiac poem composed somewhere between 600 and 1000 CE written by a Christian Anglo-Saxon let's say uh, poet although that term Anglo-Saxon is apparently a bit controversial these days. English poet let's say. Looking back with both uh, distance and generosity at the world and culture of his. Uh, assuming it was a hymn. Germanic, Scandinavian and pagan forebears. And to pick up a theme from last week. We are seeing in Beowulf a fresh stream I guess of pagan Germanic culture. Coming into a classical Christian influenced world, and I guess it's also a bit of a story that although one can tell the history of Rome as the foundation and the the fountainhead of Western civilization, in fact there are many streams that contribute to the culture we have today and one of those is this uh, world which is glimpsed in the poem Beowulf. Unlike Rome perhaps Beowulf is less known in the popular culture although as I am discovering uh, there are some connections which we'll get into with Lord of the Rings and there's also been a movie of Beowulf and indeed a computer game of Beowulf. Indeed, I believe there's an Assassin's Creed Valhalla which seems to feature Beowulf and there has also been a recent television series. So it's not entirely lost, I guess, to the culture. It's actually quite strongly there in the culture. And I guess in a way, as we'll see, it it helps it's partly the imaginative wellspring of Tolkien's world, and hence the world of fantasy, the world of most fantasy role-play games that people play on their computers these days, or their Playstations indeed. So today I'm going to cover a few dimensions of the story of Beowulf. There's the story of the manuscript itself, which I guess in my opening I indicated is quite remarkable, The story of the language, Old English, the cultural world of the poem, the story told in the poem, the poetry of the poem, and then finally the legends we make today of the poem. Okay let's get into it. So the manuscript first. So no one is 100% sure who wrote Beowulf or when they wrote when Beowulf was written. They're pretty sure it was written and not orally composed and then transcribed, if you like. Which is, I guess, the theory for Homer's uh, poems. It wasn't like a collective thing. It feels very much like the work of an individual poet and a literate poet working with a range of traditions of literature. The manuscript was still written down sometime though, in the 11th century, with two scribes working on it, both of whom make their own kind of mistakes apparently in writing it down as well, which people have had to try to work through over over time, and hence partly the uncertainty over what is the actual meaning of the name Beowulf. Is it Warwolf? Is it Thor Wolf? Is it Bee Hunter? (laughs) Um, But this manuscript was then stored in the monasteries of England, uh, survived Henry VIII's looting of of the monasteries in the uh, 16th century, and then was ultimately transferred to a very important collection of... Old English manuscripts and documents of early England that was kept in what was called the Cook Library after I think Sir Richard Cook. And it was then stored in the Ashburnham Library along with uh, many valuable manuscripts of the King of England in West minster london and apparently ashburnham house is still there it's um it's recovered from the fire and all that sort of thing but on the 23rd of october uh, 1731 that was where the fire broke out that i referred to before and it was potentially a terrible disaster because there were kept there a a manuscript of the anglo-saxon chronicle which was virtually destroyed And various other very precious manuscripts. And the thing about Beowulf was there was just the single, single manuscript. So it could well have been lost to this world if uh, the librarian had not fixed things up. However, in the fire the manuscript was actually damaged, singed, burnt on the edges and various other other sort of uh, problems as well. It was then stored, perhaps more securely, somewhere in England. I think it's it now rests very, very securely in the British Library. So I assume it is kept. In, it was moved to the British Library soon after this, and it was really not widely known until the early nineteenth century, when a Icelandic scholar published it as a history of the Danes and the Swedes uh but then through the 19th century it really grew in uh importance and recognition especially in English scholarship as a as, as a text of of the early medieval period remembering there was a very strong element of sort of medieval revivalism in uh 19th century as well and there are all sorts of techniques used to rehabilitate the text and to question some of the uh mistakes made by scribes and the the words that had been lost due to fire or damage from worms eating the text and all this sort of thing. So it's really quite an extraordinary story of the survival of a very very precious cultural object through all sorts of contingencies, and thank God it's safe. Now in the British Library. But it is also being translated many, many, many times from Old English into uh, different versions of Modern English. And as well as obviously other, other languages. And you can actually view it online in its full manuscript form. Complete with burn marks and tears and all the rest of it. Page by page at the British Library's website. So I'll, I'll include a link to that in the show notes. The language of Beowulf is part of its importance and it was I guess part of the initial focus of the uh, scholarship directed at Beowulf in the 19th century. Um, it's long been uh, studied as the uh, one of the most fecund or fertile deposits of Old English. In a way it was sort of the Shakespeare of its era. I'm told there are I think 40,000 words. Anyhow an awful large number of actual Old English words in uh, Beowulf. And much of the language of Old English is actually known through Beowulf as much as anything. So for example, there are apparently about 30 or so known words for sword in Old English, uh, as it's come down to us, and almost all of them come from the poem Beowulf. I guess that's just partly the chance of survival of certain things, but it's also indicative of the, of the creativity, I guess, of the poet in writing these languages, in in writing the poem and coming up with these words. And one of the features of the language of Beowulf, which again is Old English, is that there are many of these sort of compound words like werewolf or like Beowulf. And there are some other examples. In a way, they're almost like metaphors in themselves. So one is bone house, uh, which means body. Another is joy wood, which means harp. And there are many other similar compound words. And I guess for a long time, it was the language itself that was the main role of Beowulf as the sort of first major poem of the English language tradition the the prime example of what old English was like that gave Beowulf a bit of a um, burdensome reputation and a sense of it just being some hard difficult thing you had to learn about in academia just get get you know learn all this this new language almost new language of old english indeed Woody Allen's advice to university students was to just don't take any class where you have to read Beowulf uh, and so i guess that also makes one of the features of Beowulf is for those of us who don't want to learn old english really have to experience it through translations. And there have been many, many, many translations. And the one that really opened Beowulf to me was the translation by the Irish poet Seamus Heaney, which, as Freya said, is the book that uh, I used to bang on to her about, partly because I have it in a wonderful illustrated edition that really evokes the, the world and the culture of uh, that era, but um, let's at least hear a little bit of what both the old English language sounded like and uh, interpo- sort of laid over that is a little bit of Seamus Haney's translation soon after, so you can actually follow along uh, and this comes from The Adventure of English Documentary that Melvin Bragg did with indeed none other than Seamus Haney.
1: The power of the language can be heard in this passage which introduces Beowulf's archenemy, the monster
0: Grendel. In off the moors, down through the mist bands, God cursed Grendel came greedily loping. The bane of the race of men roamed forth, hunting for a prey in the high hall. Spurned and joyless, he journeyed on ahead and arrived at the was. Bon. Then his rage boiled over, he ripped open the mouth of the building, maddening for blood.
1: He grabbed and mauled a man on his bench bit into his bone lappings bolted down his blood and gorged on him in lumps
0: leaving the body utterly lifeless eaten up hand and foot so this is part of the miracle of the hayden translation but it's also part of the way in which one can appreciate beowulf by looking the many different ways that people translate it. And we'll get into some examples of that a little bit later when I talk about the poem itself. Okay, what about the cultural world that the poem tells the history of? It is an old English poem, but it's not a poem about England or the English. But rather it is about three Scandinavian, Northern German, Northern European Tribes or groups: the Swedes, the Danes, and the Geats, or some people say the Yeats. And it really is it is a poem written that is describing the adventures and the stories and the world of, I guess, what people used to call Anglo-Saxon England. Uh, although nowadays, apparently, that term is a little bit out of favour. But let's call it the the world of England, Scandinavia northern germany in that uh, early medieval period what used to be known as the dark ages and for many years it was really sort of trapped in in its its uh, representation its role as a symbol or a a historical document that uh, represented the germanic civilization that the grand classical civilization of rome considered a lesser civilization a lesser culture in 1936 37 J.R.R. Tolkien wrote his essay about Beowulf which again I referred to at the start of the show where he said for years Beowulf had been seen as a picture of a whole civilization of the Germania which Tacitus describes not purely literary interest but an important historical document and in Beowulf we see uh, scaldic poets, we see warrior heroes, we see feasts and sort of mead houses, we see combat, we see how this culture dealt with death, and we see grief and keenings, which are sort of wails of grief. And it is a wonderfully presented world, and it's really of the same era, let's say, around about seven hundreds, if we assume it's written in, as the archaeological discoveries of Sutton Hoo, where there was a grand burial of a of a king, and that deposit was actually found in the late 1930s or early 1940s at the sort of cusp of world war ii and has recently been shown in the film the dig so and it's it's the artifacts of that era that are shown in Seamus Haney's illustrated edition of Beowulf now the other thing though even though it is looking back at that era and that world and telling the stories of the Swedes and the Danes and the Geats. It is actually a Christian poem written by a Christian poet. That manages to combine both a belief in a Christian God. And a, a separation from the warrior culture code of the lost pagan world. But also a real generosity, of spirit and a love for that pagan world And that, that makes Beowulf special As a historical document I guess But also as a poem And the poet really The poet of Beowulf Really presents Beowulf As a great warrior of old Who nonetheless used wisely The gifts of God So some people say He represents a bit of a new kind of hero not just a warrior but someone who can or not just a thinker but someone who combines thought word and deed to represent a good life and so the poem is really looking back at these ancestor myths surrounding the Danes and the Geats and the Swedes from maybe centuries maybe less before the time of composition but it's looking back from a Christian perspective, someone who believes in God, the Father and Creator, but someone still who who is in touch with the mental world pre conversion of these pagans to Christianity and still sees great cultural value in it. Tolkien compares it indeed to Virgil's Aeneid, not in its not in its uh, imitation of any of the forms of that epic poem but rather where he says we have the great pagan on the threshold of the change of the world i.e virgil and the great if lesser christian just over the threshold of the great change in his time and place the backward view thinking of many things and deploring the uneven lot so in a way it's a sort of a meditation on a lost and valuable world. Now the story. So Beowulf is essentially a, a quest hero type story. And Beowulf who is a prince of one of these tribes. The Danes maybe or the Geats. Maybe he's the Geats. He effectively confronts three monsters. Human semi-human two of them are sort of uh potentially just superhuman beings but three monsters and two are defeated in the heroic deeds of his youth and then one is defeated in his later life and that final monster kills Beowulf as well as dying at um You know, in the combat with Beowulf. And then Beowulf is honoured and farewelled in a great funeral pyre uh, at the end of the poem. And so there are these uh, three monsters that basically define the story. First, there is Grendel, who some people say was used as a model for Gollum in Lord of the Rings, he's a kind of twisted troll-like human who starts attacking a Danish village that is in in some kind of revenge for him being uh, mistreated. So Beowulf goes out and defeats Grendel. And then Grendel's mother, who again is... Variously described in some of these compound words which can be, have had, had a history of being uh, translated in particular ways or misread. but Sometimes it's described as a sea mol- monster but it's sometimes described in a more recent translation as a warrior woman. Uh, Grendel's mother then fights Beowulf and Beowulf... Ultimately, uh, 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 and she fights him, she fights him in to seek revenge for Beowulf's killing of Grendel. And then the poem skips after some poems within poems and a few diversions here and there. It skips to a final combat scene between Beowulf and a fire-breathing dragon. And, in this uh, mighty combat that Beowulf conducts much later in his life, after he has become not just a young warrior but a a prince of his his tribe, his nation, one could say, he defeats the fire-breathing dragon, but the he is mortally wounded and dies, and then the his grateful his grateful people build a great funeral pyre complete with gold and that's like a like a burial mound type thing for as in that was discovered at Sutton Hoo as a a great funeral pyre where he is farewelled and that's the basic story I guess that's the basic story and but Tolkien says that that one of the things about this uh, story is that the monsters are both human and inhuman. And so it's not just the story of some uh, king going off and fighting things. It is a story that is larger and more significant than this imaginary poem of a great king's fall. The struggles become both, uh, become more symbolic, more metaphorical, more rich in their associations indeed Seamus Haney also says that in a way each of the three combats represent the story of different the different countries let's say the Danes the Geats and at last the Swedes and for a long and in fact Beowulf as a poem actually does contain real historical references uh, there's been some debate as to whether Beowulf himself was a real person, but it seems he is more a imagined hero who lives in a semi-real and semi-fictional world. So it it does all that, but then it also creates these powerful symbols that become both psychological symbols, but also you know rich, rich stories. If you like, it's a little bit like combating the eye of Sauron in the Lord of the Rings. Okay, what about the poem itself? Now, again, it's important because in the tradition of scholarship, it is the first great poem of the English tradition. And to the English, it is seen as without peer in the Christian world of that time. Uh, I don't know whether that's really true, but let's let's say it is for now. Although, is it, as I was saying, in for many years it was studied primarily for the language. While it was often studied for the language, Tolkien and Heaney and many others really say this is a remarkable piece of poetry in itself. And part of that is just its unusual way of telling stories. It's not really an epic it's a very elegiac thing but it's heroic it contrasts youth with great deeds with old age and death there's much reflection there's not a glorying of war there's great grief about death and the, the destruction of war and well there is one particularly wonderful uh, example of that that i'll read in a sec but um and it's also composed in the particular style or f- uh, genre or form of Old English verse, which was related to the sort of scaldic let's say Scandinavian sort of Norse sort of tradition of poetry that makes heavy use of alliteration and uh, what is also called internal rhyme. So each of the individual lines of the poem is sort of broken into two parts and divided by what's called a sejura and then in so there is a uh, alliteration uh, a certain number of stresses and this sort of um it's like each individual line is like a mirror image of itself and perhaps the easiest way to convey this is just to read a couple of examples From uh, Heaney's translation And one of the remarkable things about Heaney's translation Is he's actually in modern English Largely preserved Without some of the more formulaic forms of it The actual pattern of the Anglo-Saxon poetry So one line is The fortunes of war Favoured Hrothgar so the two the internal rhyme there of fortunes and favored the highest in the land would lend advice again land and lend and find friendship in the father's embrace. So that's that's the kind of uh, I guess stylistic poetic style and it's one of the wonderful things about the poetry. Now, of course, I'm not going to read huge slabs of the poetry, but one of the other fascinating things about Beowulf is there are so many different translations and, and, and uh, I guess, recreations of the language to connect with our current day concerns in different ways and, you know, to interpret it in various ways. And there's a particular wonderful section, a particularly moving section of the poem. Towards the end of the poem, once Beowulf has been put on the funeral pyre and burnt, and it turns to a Geetish woman who sings a keen or a, a mourning song or cries out her grief. Not so much for Beowulf as... For all the suffering that is yet to come to her people. And Seamus Haney has a wonderful version of this. And similarly, there's actually been a very recent translation by a, it's, it's described as a feminist translation of Beowulf that also ren, um, conveys this fabulously. So I'm just going to read this little section of the poem as a way of uh, helping everyone appreciate what a wonderful and um, richly thoughtful in a way poem Beowulf is that it's more than just heroic deeds from antiquated pagan heroics so this is reading from line 3137 Uh, of Beowulf. First of all I'm going to read from the Seamus Haney translation from 2000 and then I'm going to read from the Maria Headley translation in 2021 or 2020. And if you wanted to you can also read online versions of the actual original Old English text and also hear this in various places but let's see how good my performance is okay first of all from hanes so Beowulf's just killed the dragon died himself and he's been uh, mourned by his people the Geet people built a pyre for Beowulf stacked and decked it until it stood four square hung with helmets Heavy war shields and shining armour, just as he had had ordered. Then his warriors laid him in the middle of it, mourning a lord far-famed and beloved. On a height they kindled the hugest of all funeral fires. Fumes of wood smoke billowed darkly up. The blaze roared and drowned out. Their weeping. Wind died down, and flames wrought havoc in the hot bone house, burning it to the core. They were disconsolate and wailed aloud for their lord's decease. A geek woman, too, sang out in grief. With hair bound up, she unburdened herself of her worst. Fears, a wild litany of nightmare and lament, her nation invaded, enemies on the rampage, bodies in piles, slavery and abasement, heaven swallowed the smoke. Okay, that is Seamus Haney's version. Now let me read from Maria Headley's version. The Geats began the pyre, howling over Beowulf, their best brother, hanging board helmets about it, shields and steel shirts, as he'd insisted. They placed him in the centre of all this treasure, their lost love, and built a bonfire worthy of men's ends. Storm smoke shuddered. From the blaze, thick and dark, and the flames keened louder than any man's weeping. The whipping winds momentarily stilled, until Beowulf's heart-helm broke. His bones blackened as his boys bellowed their grief. Then another dirge rose. Woven uninvited by a Gittish woman, louder than the rest. She tore her hair and screamed her horror at the hell that was to come. More of the same. Reaping, raping, feasts of blood, iron fortunes marching across her country. Claiming her body. The sky sipped the smoke and smiled. There you go. So two versions of a remarkable moment. And I think perhaps part of the extraordinary character of this poem. Is that two such different interpretations can be found. I guess there's both the voice of heroism and the voice of the victims of heroism that is contained within the poem. Okay, so why? what about the legends we make of the poem today? And why does it still matter to us? Now, two of the great writers of the 20th century have written on Beowulf. And we featured both of them a little bit today in the podcast. They are, of course, J.R.R. Tolkien and Seamus Haney. and uh, interestingly enough it's there is a particularly significant influence of Beowulf on Tolkien's Lord of the Rings so uh, the names of some of the races in Lord of the Rings including Ents, Orcs and Elves and some place names all derived from Beowulf. Apparently there is a we are bear in the Hobbit. Known as Bayorn. Uh, which some people see as similar to Beowulf themselves. And also there are some comparisons between Tolkien's monsters. And Beowulf's monsters. Noting that when Tolkien wrote his essay about Beowulf. He really focused on the monsters. His trolls and Gollum uh, have some similarities with the one of the monsters, monsters slash foes in in Beowulf called Grendel, and some people also say there are some similarities between the Smaug, Smog I'm not a terrible, uh, terribly good Tolkien scholar. Smorg, Smaug, S M A U G, and the dragon in Beowulf. And then similarly, some of the writers of Rohan in the Lord of the Rings stories are very much made up of uh, Old English culture, poetry language taken from Beowulf. And then similarly, there's a sense in which Tolkien uses some of the techniques of Beowulf, of, uh, uh, of a Christian looking back at a pagan past, and using the symbolism of that world without becoming too allegorical. Uh, but also using it to evoke the texture and feeling of a big world. A sort of world building nature of Lord of the Rings. And Seamus Haney also writes wonderfully about Beowulf. He studied it for many years to do his translation and his translation is uh, accompanied by a short little introductory essay which explains aspects of how he went about it, but also kind of gives his uh, appreciation of it. And let me just read the last one the, the, one of the sort of summarizing uh, paragraphs that talks about the the qualities of Beowulf that make it uh, enjoyable Not just as a remnant of a lost culture But also as a poem to enjoy today So uh, Haney writes at these moments of And this is going to lead us up to the exact point In the poem that I've just read The two two versions of, the two translations of so at these moments of lyric intensity, the keel of the poetry is deeply set in the element of sensation, while a mind's lookout sways metrically and far-sightedly in the element of pure comprehension. Which is to say that the elevation of Beowulf is always, paradoxically, buoyantly down to earth, and nowhere is this more obviously and memorably the case than in the account of the hero's funeral, with which the poem ends. Here the inexorable and the elegiac combine in a description of the funeral pyre being got ready, the body being burnt, and the barrow being constructed. A scene at once immemorial and oddly contemporary. The geet woman who cries out in dread as the flames consume the body of her dead lord, could come straight from a late 20th century news report from Rwanda or Kosovo. keen, or indeed now Afghanistan, Herkeen is a nightmare glimpse into the minds of people who have survived traumatic, even monstrous events and who are now being exposed to a comfortless future we immediately recognize her predicament and the pitch of her grief and find ourselves the better for having them expressed with such adequacy and dignity and unforgiving truth. I think that's a wonderful appreciation of Seamus Haney, and a great recommendation to read it or to appreciate it in some way. And I'd look. I would also just add three other aspects of the poem from my own point of view that connect to the stories I'm telling. Uh, I guess through the burning archive, uh, and one of those is that Beowulf helps tell the st- the story of the slow Christianization of Europe. If we think about the story we told last time about. The conversion of Rome to Christianity, that was hardly the end of the Christianisation of Europe. Christianisation of Europe continues to go for another thousand years or so as the Vikings and the Anglo-Saxons and the, the Rus and and uh, the sort of northern tribes of Europe are gradually, slowly converted from their rich pagan traditions to some form of Christianity and a melding culture, a melded culture emerges from it. So I think it's also an important reflection again um, building on our discussion last week about the history of Rome to remember that the culture that we live in today has so many different streams and they've sort of come together in a in a very rich, rich combination. The second thing, I guess, is just how remarkable it is that a poem like Beowulf, which is clearly of its time, can yet still reach out, reach both back to the lost pagan past that it evokes and, um, there I say it, love us well. So it will not be reft from thee but uh, reach, reaches is back to that time and can speak to us today in, in of both the experiences of people long past the dead and of our own experiences our own imaginative experiences of dealing with terror and horrors and mortality and all the rest Part of the reason to look back and appreciate these great works of culture, that it is that aspiration to, to be part of a infinite conversation with the, the the not just our own times, but past times, future times and our own times. And then I think the final thing that I really uh, appreciate about Beowulf is that it is it is that that remarkable scene where you turn from the celebration of the hero to the great grief of the non-heroic gitish woman who is enduring so much suffering and anticipates so much more suffering to come and it is that sense in which there is there are so many voices in this poem. There are so many. Uh, well realized. Voices. That culture isn't just. A, a monochrome thing. It is a. A polyphonous A polyphonic poem. Let's say. A polyphonous piece of music. Uh, it has many many voices. And that is part of the wonder of it. And part of the 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 need to not despise the past, but to and not to turn the past into a, a nostalgic, you know, museum piece, but to listen to all the different voices uh, that are present in the cultural fragments that have survived from the past. Okay, now if you would like to find out more or appreciate more about uh, Beowulf. There are so many resources on the web uh, about it. You can listen to some discussion about the language on the History of English podcast. There's specific episodes around Beowulf. And you can read the poem online as well. Uh, you can actually compare translations even to some degree online. But you can also... There is a wonderful performer, Benjamin Bagby, who actually performs at least most of the poem Beowulf. And you can watch this on YouTube. And he performs it with a medieval harp or a, I think they call it an Anglo-Saxon lute or something like that. And so he combines the sort of poetry reading slash singing plus music performance of the skaldic tradition you know scandinavia northern europe he performs it in old english so you can actually hear it in old english but then the the uh, modern english translation is shown up on the screen so you can kind of follow along and it's superbly done energetically done uh, a great way of getting into it so i'll include a link to that in the podcast so that's it for this week. Next week, I'm going to turn to the story of the capture of silk worms by the Byzantine Empire, and just what did it mean for China and the Silk Roads? Which is a fascinating, fascinating story. But it, until then, remember, what thou lovest well will not be reft from thee. And let's go out for a little fragment. Of Benjamin Bagby's performance of Beowulf. Be well, all.
1: That from harmly flaying here, lark is stained, gold them grendless darder Say, with mounkin is mine, is them. unto death, is his other lad on air can. Haiti me leading gold year with quoth, hey good, curling over swan, rather safe and wood. Mare feld. tha him was man a Thon Though the seed him snoth on a, a child as lead one log on thelf, tha him left ware. Wet and hear off now, how Heft is a god, yet a lewd a camp on and a father, thank no, is soon, soon result, since we said First, for the war, to us all on the barrier, the fear better the Kuselo Yatulic. Govan Utshoven, Wereson, Will Seed, Wuru, Bonden.